Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime, mystery and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of running a creative business in this challenging world. We'll hear from the people who make this possible, the authors, the cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast Book Show from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Welcome to the Hobcast Book Show, episode 118. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. And together we run not only this podcast, the Hobcast Book Show, but also Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Mysteries. Suspense. Crime. And thrillers. And you're extremely welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us again this week. And our wonderful guest this week is Amma Anwar who joined us from West London, and he is a CWA Dagger winner. He is indeed, and he has lots of books. He does. He had a fantastic collection of books behind him when we spoke to him from his West London home. Uh, but it's one of those interviews where literally we, we didn't say a lot because his first answer was so captivating, we were riveted, and so will you be. His path to publication... It's one of the most remarkable stories I think we've ever heard on this podcast. I think it's a shame in a way it wasn't on video because we were both agog. Yes, we were. If you can, if you can visualise what two agog people look like, Absolutely. that was us. No, that was us. Um, so Amir is our um, guest a little bit later. It's been a big week in the week of publishing. One that I experienced from afar here you in Staffordshire. Did. But you ventured... Into London. I know. I was in the in the, the throng of, of the, the the publishing world. I was at the London Book Fair at Olympia in London on Thursday. Yeah. I just went for the day. Absolutely. Well, let's capture some of the spirit of it. Can you hear that? That isn't the hubbub of Hobeck Towers. It is the hubbub of the London Book Fair. And I'm here without my partner in crime just for the day because I had a couple of meetings and um, only one of us could go because the cat needed someone to stay behind. And as I talk to you now, I'm walking past the Shrajar Book Authority on the left, enormous Simon & Schuster stand on the right. It's about the size of a small village. And I'm walking towards France. And I can see Germany just in the distance. That's the beauty of the London Book Fair, is you can cross continents with just a few footsteps and no passport. This place is full of books. There are books everywhere, shelves of books, yet you can't read any of them or pick any of them up. It's also full of chairs, yet you can't sit on any of them unless you're having a meeting with someone. Um, I've been here since uh, 12. It's now 3 o'clock, and I think I've walked about 20,000 steps. So I'm quite tired, and I'm missing my partner in crime. So I think I'm going to go home soon and see how he's doing with the cat. You got back to the cat at about, and myself, <laughs> about half past ten that night. You were exhausted. You walked over 20,000 steps. I did. I felt like the reclaimers. 
Um, yes, and that's 5,000 miles, isn't it? Or 500 miles. 500 anyway, miles. yeah, it was only 10 miles. I would walk 10 miles. Anyway, so yes, and I had a fantastic day. It was brilliant. It was busy. It was hectic. But there was that buzz that just makes you feel pl- so proud to be part of an industry where people love what they're making as much as they do in publishing. And in terms of people that we've spoken to on the podcast, who did you bump into? Um, very, very briefly, Alison Jones, who we interviewed at the London Book Fair last year. Um, we exchanged a quick hug and a, ooh, ooh, let's talk later, but never got round to it. Um, and Rachel McLean as well bumped into into the ladies' lose, um, which is fab. And we had a little chat outside. Um, she's doing wonderful things with her um, books. She's, she's looking into small print runs and how to how, the logistics of how to manage that as an independent author. So that was quite an interesting chat with her as well. Mm. Um, I, from afar, I saw Mark Stay. He was giving. Um, he was on a panel. Well, he was the moderator of a panel. Yes. And then Mark Dawson smiling at the KDP stand as well. I saw him. Yes, with his brillantine teeth. <laughs> his brillantine teeth, yes. Yes, fresh back from New York where he had been enjoying part of his 50th birthday celebrations. Uh, it's been, a, so, I mean, clearly a huge event, London Book Fair. And personally, as you will have heard last week, I was quite relieved not to go. Um, I find it very challenging. But did you not, when I was sending you pictures and messages, did you not have that sort of mm, feeling not, of, oh? Well, no, I mean, you know, let's be honest. London Book Fair is, is, a, is a great event in need of some seating. Well, it's, it's one of the big ironies of the place is it's full of chairs, yet you can't sit on them unless you have a, a meeting. Exactly. Yeah, it's only for those with appointments. <laughs> um, but no, I, I didn't miss it at all. And... Um, yeah, it, it, it's. It, I think there's some interesting things that have emerged from it. I think everyone was saying that this year's London Book Fair got its buzz back because last year it was still in the shadow of COVID a little bit and we caught COVID while we were there. We did, and I don't think I have COVID. I don't feel ill or anything, no. so fingers crossed. Um, and the talk, this is according to the article in the bookseller. I'm sorry, I just yawned heavily. I've, I've been um, out teaching my son to drive today and i'm absolutely exhausted um but uh sorry that was a really big gap wasn't it the 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 fact is that you know they're talking about the impact of artificial intelligence on the publishing industry and price pressures and how particularly if you're doing print books the the whole price model has been ripped up by the cost of, of printing i actually caught the tail end of an interesting talk um so you know how when we go to london book fair they do talks in the um independent author section but there were also talks in other parts of the the london book fair and 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 you can just walk in and sit down like you can with the independent author one and i caught the tail end of um, a talk which was about diversity and encouraging writers from underrepresented backgrounds and um minorities and what was interesting though is that the the, one of the speakers was saying this is fine and great but you've got to start really young if you want people to believe that they can write and to give them the skills in order to write um their stories then you've got to go back to education and encourage it as a you know right at the beginning and i thought that was actually that's how i feel about the whole um you know encouraging well, I mean, it's going to be interesting, let's say, in 20 years' time, because certainly in the UK, the way that creative writing is now so prescriptive, mm. uh, you know, because let's be honest, 
creative writing kind of dries up um, in secondary school. Yeah. In primary school, they're encouraged to think about all these different constructions and throwing in as many adjectives and adverbs as possible. They're actually not really learning anything about style, realistically. They're actually, you know, they're cramming in as many words and they're told to lengthen sentences where possible and all this sort of stuff to do well in their sats. Um, And I don't think that's really great, uh, you know, it's not really building a passion for literature or for reading in the young. Well, that's what this person was saying. She was saying not only is it not encouraging people from underrepresented backgrounds, it's everybody is being, their creativity is being dampened by this this need to pass tests in a certain prescriptive way, like mm. you describe. Well, isn't it interesting? I mean, you know, because I think what Amma is going to talk to us about in our interview is one of the great examples of how this is somebody who's clearly creative, didn't do spectacularly well academically. Um, that's not really his sort of background. From Southall, you know, a bit of a lad, he was saying, you know, and drifted through a few jobs before finding some... Um, you know, employment as a, as a creative person. But in terms of writing a novel, he never had anybody to look up to from his background in Southall, the South Asian community, to inspire him to think that he could do it. And then when he did submit a book, which subsequently won awards uh, and was nominated, you know, was in newspaper lists for the best books of the years in which he was published, uh, he, he faced rejection from all the major publishers, even though he had an agent because at that stage, just a few years ago, they were not actively looking for people with diverse backgrounds. And he was being told, basically, that the people who buy books in this country won't be interested in reading a story based in this community. Mm. And how wrong they were and how wrong and how much things have changed all of a sudden in publishing. But only because they finally figured out that they should be ashamed that they were treating people like Amir the way they were yes but it's it's a lot of change very quickly and i think it's got to be put very early on so that that it makes sense to have the change if you know if that makes sense i don't know but yeah okay i mean you know it's as he says i mean we put that question to him and he says look any 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 shift in the in the publishing industry is is welcome Mm, indeed but um you know the the question we've always had on this program is just how sincere is it and how much of it is yeah. virtue signaled. If they are sincere and if they mean what they're saying, then they have got to push for more change on a macro level. Right. Now, I mean, we're talking about AI, and I was listening to another podcast, a very popular podcast, the Creative Pen podcast, presented by Joanna Penn, and she had just got back from 20 books in Seville. And... Uh, this is an organisation run by Michael Andelay, who created 20 books to 50K on the basis that if you wrote 20 books, you could easily make 50K in revenue. Um, that's not necessarily the case anymore, but it nonetheless is a very popular forum for talking about the future of publishing. And he has a publishing company and has p- published last year 350 books. And his target for this year was to get 700 out from his authors. He changed that as a result of the uh, uh, his understanding of what Chat GPT four, this new um, version of AI open source uh, programming, can do for the creative process. He now wants to release ten 
thousand books this year. Blimey, I'll see anything I can say to that. Which is basically by teaching the machine to write novels for you. Oh, God. Who wants to read that, though? Well, that's the big question. (laughs) I don't want to read books created by AI. I just don't. I've just had a book delivered from uh, about ChatGPT4, and it is partially written by the program itself or the, the system itself, along with a human interactive do you know what? It would be quite a fun challenge if somebody submitted to us a book and just said, this is my submission. And then after we read it, and if, assuming we reply and say, yeah, we love it, can we have the, the full manuscript? And they went, ha ha, it's written by chat, chat what? GB. GBT4, yeah. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I, think, I think this is really interesting crossroads we're at now, where the enthusiasts are saying that it's now turning out books which are perfectly... P- publishable within three hours um if you, as long as you teach it to think in you know in along the right lines and show it examples of good crime writing for instance three hours oh dear well, that's let, depressing isn't why it? why don't we as a podcast experiment with it and see whether there's any veracity in this okay what are you proposing uh i don't know uh, yet oh, uh, we'll have a think about we'll that. have a think about it and we've got something very exciting for you a little later in the program after our interview with Amir. We're, we're, last week we, we did something on the Archers. We did uh, a little spoof, a little bit of fun, and it went down really well. A lot of people commenting positively about our bit of fun. We're going to uh, spoof another bit of BBC yeah, content. Yeah, something we watch a lot, but we're not going to say what, though, no, are we? No, we're not. So you have to keep listening because it's going to be worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, another major development this week, uh, and this is something that we were suggesting uh, that small presses like us should be doing, um, and we've been beaten to the punch a little bit by seven largely London-based publishers, some of whom we know. Yes. Arenda being one of them, uh, Karen Sullivan, and uh, the others are Cambry Press, Fairlight Books, Jacaranda Books, who are uh, very uh, well-known now, Legend Times, Muswell Press, Arenda, as I mentioned, and Wild Things Publishing. And they are joining forces together to create a new organisation called the Small Press Alliance, the SPA. And they're offering each other mutual support amid a quickly changing market. And the uh, most of the uh, challenges they're facing are post-pandemic as supply costs spiral. And there's a long, long article here with lots and lots of quotes from all the different uh, people uh, think, but, but shall I just read out the one from Karen yeah because we know Karen yeah. um, in an increasingly challenging industry it makes sense to join forces with like minded small publishers to amplify our voices, use our collective energy, insights and passion for mutual benefit and to offer support to one another and this part of the industry as a whole small presses face difficult times but together we can create a platform to sustain this immensely important part of the co- publishing ecosystem well, look, I think we'll um, bring this up, you know, if we see Karen at an event in the next few <laughs> months and see whether Hobeck has a uh, a home there too, because I think that you can do that in London, but I think there's plenty of small presses out, out in the sticks like I, us. I think we should do a Midlands one, actually. I think we should get together with some of the other publishers based in the Midlands. Okay. And have a sort of a, you know, a Midlands press alliance maybe we should but look i i I applaud the the thing and i think they they do pick out the you know members of the ipg as well a lot of the members of this new organization but the the ipg the independent publishers guild isn't quite 
focusing on our end of the market? Well, I think the, the diff- difference with the IPG is also that it's not just publishers. So it's anyone who is an independent worker within the publishing industry. So, for example, Alison Owen, who I work for, she offers consultant uh, consultancy services to academic publishers. And she's a member of the IPG. Uh, you also get... Bloomsbury um, are part of the IPG. Bloomsbury are part of the IPG, but also self-publishing providers of all sorts of... Um, shapes and sizes as well so it's print solutions and all sorts yes yes Uh, yeah it it, i think i think there there is a need for a collective work but i you know let's just monitor situation and see how that things develop um but as i say uh there's so much churn and change in the industry at the minute that it's you know it's difficult to figure out what path to take in future but we will continue as we will discuss later in the programme, to keep looking for talented authors to join the Hobeck team. Yes, we are currently looking at submissions, aren't we? So We are. OK, well, let's get to our interview, shall we? we um, yeah. Because um, it's, a, it's an absolute doozy. We, we had a fantastic time talking to Amit Anwar. And uh, he has a remarkable story of perseverance and chutzpah and creativity to get himself to the position he is now. He won the debut dagger in 2018, I think it was, um, at the CWA. Maybe even earlier than that, actually. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I, I lost the chronology of that. But um, he, he, from that, he got an agent, and he just submitted the first 3,000 words um, he, he'd, <laughs> he'd written of a crime novel. And immediately, agents took interest. But the trouble was, he hadn't written any more. Yeah, so, so it's quite it funny. it took him about five years to finish that first book, uh, and then... He had an agent but couldn't find a publisher, so he published it himself. And well, let's let it's him a good story, story. It's yeah. a brilliant story. It's worth listening to. And this is a fantastic interview. So let's speak to Amer Anwar. Well, we're delighted to be joined by Amer Anwar from his home in London. Welcome to the Hobcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. Uh, it's been we're really been looking forward to this this interview, an opportunity to speak to you. Um because your career has been extraordinary in the sense of the point to which you became an author uh has you know been a path of many many different things many many different jobs yeah um so take us through that that sort of iteration and that that journey that you've been on to get to this point well i i think the reason it was such a long journey is because i never actually thought that i would ever be a writer even though from a very young age, I loved to read. I, I didn't see people from my sort of background as as writers, so I never thought it was something I could do. I mean, I always sort of harboured that dream. I always thought, oh, I'd love to write a book. I love, I love reading all sorts of things, and I would love to be able to do that, but I just didn't think it was something I could do. So it was never really on the radar. But I was always sort of kind of creative, so I went into other sort of creative fields when I left uh, college I I wanted to do photography but there was a recession on so everyone was firing and no one was hiring so Mm. you know that was that proved very difficult and then I did lots of other jobs just to sort of tide me over and I was working freelance in comic books and I sort of felt well people sort of noticed early on that my handwriting was really really good and they said well you can do the lettering for comic books 
because <laughs> that's quite a sort of niche skill. Yeah, um, and, I didn't and, know they had people do that. Yeah, well, before the advent of computers taking it all over, it was all done by hand. So, yeah, I started sort of doing that freelance. Um, and so I was lettering all the speech balloons and <laughs> doing the sound effects and things in, in comic books for oh, Boom company. and bam. <laughs> yeah, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. and, and that was, that was good fun. And I was doing, you know, other bits of sort of artwork and stuff like that freelance. But then, you know, that, well, obviously that wasn't sort of paying enormously well. So loads of other sort of jobs doing whatever, as we sort of mentioned earlier, driving emergency doctors around, uh, working in warehouses and, um, you know, I eventually got a job working as a chalet rep in the French Alps. Learned how to snowboard, spent a whole winter there. It was good fun. But just I think the sort of things that creative people do, I think writers and actors and people like that, while they're sort of resting in between jobs, as it were, or sort of striving to find the right sort of situation. And for me, what happened is I came back from working in the Alps and I needed a job. And I, I uh, managed to blag my way into a uh, printing company. And because I bought a computer before I went away, but I didn't really know how to use it. <laughs> and I, so I sort of, I had a couple of beginner's books on some of the software and I sort of managed to sort of fudge the interview and, and I got the job. And then, you know, it, it was very soon became apparent. I didn't really know that much, but fortunately I picked these things up very quickly. And so, you know, within a, a short sort of space of time, I, I picked up what I needed to know and I sort of, ran with that and that was very technical and I was quite creative so gradually all the creative jobs you know designing logos and letterheads and and stationery and stuff like that leaflets for people I was sort of getting those jobs and then I sort of transitioned from there to another company which was specialized in sort of DVDs and CDs and stuff so I was working on film covers and and things like that. And then gradually I started working for the big film studios and, you know, I was doing things like James Bond covers and Captain America and stuff like that. And so I really enjoyed that uh, for me, you know, it was creative. It was good fun. There was no heavy lifting after all those warehouse jobs. So <laughs> yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed that. And it didn't really feel like work because it felt like sort of just sort of playing about on the computer. Fun. <laughs> Yeah, and I used to, you know, have headphones on, listen to music, chat to the other guys in the studio. So, yeah, it was very kind of relaxed and stuff. Um, but in the back of my mind, there was still always this thing, oh, I'd, you know, I'd love to write a book. But I think I'd sort of shoved it way to the back and thought, oh, you know, if it ever happens, like, I'll be sort of in my dotage, sort of retired <laughs> and loads of spare time and then, you know, thinking of having a crack at it. But through working in the in the sort of art field and stuff, when the internet really sort of took off, I thought it'd be useful to know a little bit about web design. So I did a couple of courses, like uh, evening courses, and they finished. And I found I actually quite after all those years of bunking off at school, I thought oh, I actually quite enjoy like being in a classroom and le and learning something something new. And so those had finished. I was looking at a prospectus for something else to sort of do. And I, there was a, an introduction to writing fiction class. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, always wanted to have a go at that. So why not do that? And so I signed up for the class. I started doing it. And at the beginning, we were just writing like a thousand words 
sort of short stories and we really was sort of like snippets and uh but i you know had a deadline every week to write something and and then sometimes you'd read it out in class and stuff and i found i really enjoyed it and more importantly i the feedback i got from others in the class was really good because i was writing these short little adventure stories and so that sort of uh kind of gave me a little bit of impetus and when that course finished, the, the tutor said, look, if anybody wants to take it further, it was allied with Birkbeck, which was part of the University of London. And there was a two-year um, graduate course. And uh, so the introduction, introductory course that I'd done that had some, like, um, cap points, which counted towards, like, a qualification. And I thought, okay, great. Um the course finished sort of March and I thought I'd, you know, after that I was ready to write a novel, but, you know, soon found I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, I need, yeah, I need another course would be really useful just for me. Not that I had to, not that anyone has to sort of do a writing course, but I think for me, I needed that sort of uh, momentum, a bit of a push and some deadlines and, and things like that to make me write because I wasn't really used to the whole writing thing. I wasn't somebody who had, been writing forever since I was a kid I mean I'd written stories when I was really young but then you know once you're in high school it's all sort of essays and stuff like that the whole creative aspect of writing just kind of fell by the wayside so I signed up for this course it was it was two years and the first year we did different things so we did um, fiction drama poetry and critical theory to this day, I still don't really understand critical theory, so don't no, ask me. I'm with you. A broad church of things. <laughs> yeah, it was. And funnily enough, I actually enjoyed all of the different aspects and I got really good kind of like comments from the tutors. And the poetry, I really thought I wasn't going to enjoy, but I, I really did. And I got really good sort of uh, feedback on my poetry and on the drama as well. And I really enjoyed it. But for me, it was always about fiction and, and writing books. and in the second year, you picked one. So I picked fiction. And at the beginning of that second year, the tutor said, what do you hope to get out of this year? And I straight away said, I want to write a crime thriller and I want to be published. And she was like, okay, that's very definite. So why don't you start writing this book now? And I thought, well, I don't think I'm ready. And she said, well, how will you know when you're ready? That's a good point because I could be writing short stories for like the next 20 years or something. And she said, you're in this class for a year. You can start writing. You can workshop it, get feedback, improve it. And by the end of the year, you'll have the start of your novel. So I thought, okay, that sounds like pretty good advice. So that's what I did. Uh, I tr- Well, it took me a couple of attempts because I think I was sort of trying to force it too much. And it just felt quite stilted when I read it back. I was like, no, this is terrible. This is not how I kind of envisage that the writing should be and so what I did is I went back I'm a massive Elmore Leonard fan mm. so I so I read an Elmore Leonard book but this time normally when I read Elmore Leonard I just sort of like sink into it and forget everything else but I made a conscious effort to like really analyze it and make notes and you know how how he sort of structured the story and stuff like that and his use of language and everything so I was sort of really studying that and at the same time I watched Payback the movie with Mel Gibson and like I really liked that movie and it just happened to be on TV I think and I watched it again and I think the combination of that movie and the Elmore Leonard kind of came together in my head and I had another crack at writing the opening 
And this time, when I read it back, I was like, that's not bad. Like, this is sort of what I'm aiming for. It had, you know, the voice and the tone was mm, was yeah. a lot, a lot better. And then, so I wrote, I think it was like the 3,000 words. I submitted it to the class and the feedback was really good. I mean, it, was, it wasn't perfect. It still needed a lot of work. You know, it was a lot of repetition and... And stuff like that. And I think as a as a sort of novice author, you tend to over explain things. So I was guilty of that. And so I, I sort of workshopped it a few times in the class and improved it. And then at the by this point, because the this the the course had started in September. So by this point we were getting to December. Now I'd heard about the Crime Writers Association debut dagger award. But I'd never had anything to submit. I always thought, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll do something and send it off. And I didn't have anything. And then here I had this first chapter. And I thought, all right, great. You know, I'm quite pleased with this. I'm just going to send it off. Um, ostensibly to get my first rejection. I thought, you know, <laughs> because I'd read On Writing by Stephen King. You know, he had hundreds of rejections. Yeah. And yeah, I thought, yeah. yeah, well, I need to get used to this. You know, rejection is is part of the journey. I need to develop a thick skin and, you know, so I don't burst into tears every time somebody says <laughs> no. So, yeah, I entered the competition and then just didn't think anything more of it. And I, I think in sort of January, February, I was looking at applying for uh, MAs in creative writing just because I kind of enjoyed that whole thing. And I didn't know any writers. So it was great to be in a group with other people who were writing. You know, you can talk writing and and all that kind of stuff, you know, they understand the struggle and the woes and stuff like that. Whereas your, my mates would just look at me going, what are you going on about? <laughs> so, so I was applying for an MA and then I got a letter, sort of, uh, I think it was late February or something. And I, was, I thought it was from one of the universities that I've been applying to. And I opened it up and it was from the Crime Writers Association. And it said, congratulations, you've been shortlisted. So out of hundreds and hundreds of entries, I'd made the top 10. Or, or was it 12 that year? I can't remember. And I was blown away. I thought, wow. I bet, yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. And I thought, wow. So when I eventually finish writing this book and start sending it to agents, I can say, well, I was, <laughs> well, I was, I was shortlisted for this sort of, you know, really prestigious major award. So I was chuffed with that. And as, as part of being shortlisted, you get invited to the actual award ceremony which was in central London, Park Lane, in a hotel, black tie. <laughs> so I so I went along. This was in, in July, not thinking anything of it. And, uh, yeah, and there was all these like famous crime writers. And I was like, wow, like, I never thought I was going to be in this sort of situation. And just sort of like it happening sort of so, it seemed quite quickly really at that point. And, um, you know, there was dinner and there was drinks. And I thought, well, you know, how, how often is this going to happen? I might as well make the most of it. So I was the wine waiter's best friend that night. I mean, every time, <laughs> yeah. every, every time I saw him coming close by, I was sort of like finishing off my drink and said, oh, yeah, yes, please. <laughs> Give me more. Yeah. So, and then they, um, they were announcing the awards then after, after dinner and the, the debut dagger being sort of like the smallest of, of the awards for a, um, for an unpublished author. That was the first one that was up. And, and people had come over from abroad as well, from Spain and Canada and stuff like that. And they read out the shortlist and they said, and the winner is Ama Anwar. 
So I'd only gone and won the bloody thing. <laughs> and like completely unexpected. But and, you hoped for a rejection as well. <laughs> well, that's why I'd entered and expecting a rejection. And obviously if I'd known if I'd known I was gonna win, I may have gone easier on the wine as well. So <laughs> Brilliant. So I had so I had to sort of you know get up and, and make a conscious effort to walk in a straight line to get on the stage and accept the award and and sort of you know uh, quickly sort of thank whoever I could think to thank at that point and then uh, left the stage as quickly as possible and it was very surreal and, and I was you know people as I was walking back to my table it was all these like famous authors congratulating me and I was like oh my god this is like so like a dream. And then I sat down and then there were those drinks afterwards and stuff like that. And then the next day I was contacted by four agents. And uh, they'd, they'd obviously, they read the, because the, the debut dagger is for the first sort of 3,000 words or 3,500 words of a, of, a, of a novel. And so they'd read that and they were saying, oh, can we read the rest of the manuscript? And of course, I never expected to win or anything. So I hadn't, <laughs> I, I hadn't even finished the book. And so I was like, well, I haven't actually written it. And I think after that, they sort of changed the rules to stipulate you need to have finished the book so that, um, you know, you've got something for the agents to look at straight away. But yeah, Yeah. total kind of never even expected it. So didn't even worry about having a completed book at that point. So I told three of the agents, look, I haven't, I haven't finished writing it yet. And they said, well, okay, when you, when you finish it, then send it along to us. But one agent, said well okay that doesn't that doesn't matter i still want you to sign with me and then when you finish it you can send it to me and so i was like okay so i looked up the agent and it was jane gregory so val mcdermott's agent belinda bowers a whole host of you know best-selling crime writers and i thought well i'm not going to say no so (laughs) because this is you know one of the top agents in the country so i signed with jane and uh and then she said okay great so how long do you think it's going to take you to finish writing this book? Now, as a complete novice, I'd never even attempted writing a book before. So I had no idea how long it would take. And I don't think I'd even read about how long these things would take. So I just sort of thought, what's a suitably longish amount of time? And so I said six months and Jane didn't bat an eyelid. And so she probably thought, wow, he can write two books a year at this rate. That's great. She was in flashes of... (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyway, it was five years before I sent her a draft that I was happy with. <laughs> and oh, you know, but you weren't very popular that day. Well, I mean, she would check in with me every so often. You know, are you still alive? Are you still writing? How's it going? Sort of thing. And I was like, yeah, I'm still writing. You know, it's going okay. You know, I'm getting there. But she didn't sort of hassle me. But then the thing is, after that, a lot of people said, wow, I'm really surprised that she didn't just sort of drop you it took it took five years but she didn't so I guess you know she must have Mm. been quite sort of keen on the book and seen the potential in the writing or something and at any rate her confidence really kept me going as well because when it got really difficult there were times when I thought what the hell am I doing you know I could be down the pub (laughs) or I could be having you know watching tv or doing something much easier than putting myself through this you know spending so much time working on the book and the trouble is my friends will sort of tell you that I'm a, a bit of a perfectionist as well. So it had to be right for me before I could send it anywhere. So hence the five years. And then I finally sort of sent it to, to Jane thinking, all oh, right, 
I've nailed it. This is it. And of course, then I got an email back a few weeks later. And uh, the first paragraph was like, really well done. You, you finished writing the book. There's some, you know, great scenes, great setting, dialogue, this and that. But, and then there was this lengthy email just sort of like explaining what was wrong with it and what I needed to fix. So, yeah, I was a bit, oh, okay. After five years, there's still, and it was still quite a lot of work. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like loads of nitpicking, but it was kind of things like the main character's motivation wasn't strong enough. But to address that, I had to rewrite the whole book because Mm -hmm. everything he thought and did had to change to strengthen his reasoning for for doing stuff. I mean, it did make it a much better book as well, because as I thought about it and I thought, yeah, you know, this would happen. And the whole thing got slightly darker, I think, whereas I think it had been a bit, perhaps a bit too light, maybe a bit flippant. And yeah, as it got darker, I think it was more sort of what I wanted it to be as well. So I did one more, like a really major rewrite of it. And then it went back and then it went through just a couple of sort of fairly light edits, which were just sort of like details and and things like that. And then I didn't hear back for a while. So I, I got in touch with Jane again. I was like, um, is everything okay? You know, are there any more amends coming? And there'd been a bit of a mix up between the edit because Jane has an editor who works for her and, and Jane herself. And they'd sort of one had gone on holiday and then the other had gone on holiday. And both of them had thought that they'd told me that the book had gone out on submission, but nobody had. So then they said, Oh, you know, it's been out on submission for a couple of weeks. And I was like, Oh my God, I didn't even know it was ready to go out. So then it was a case of, um, waiting for you know feedback and fingers crossed I'd, I'd get a deal uh and the book went out i think about sort of 30 or so you know imprints and editors and publishing houses and it got rejected by every single one of them wow yeah well yeah wow wasn't the word i used but no <laughs> no i mean that's yeah that's dark <laughs> yeah I, but, but the, the, i think but the thing was that the feedback was really good and so that was a bit confusing. So, you know, they were saying things like, oh, the writing's really good. The setting's great. Characters are good. The action's good. The dialogue, uh, you know, all these. And I was thinking, hang on a minute. Well, what more do you want in a crime thriller? If it's got all those elements. Mm-hmm. But it was always, it's always kind of like a little but, you know, oh, we don't think we have the right mission plan for it. You know, it doesn't quite fit our list. Um, and then I think the most, I think the most telling one was, um, where one editor had said, uh, I can't quite visualise this appealing to a broad audience. Now, the book is set in West London, in yeah. in the Asian community. All the characters are Asian, and there's a lot of Asian references and stuff like that. And I think taking all of that feedback together and reading between the lines, I kind of suddenly got what that broad audience was, what they meant by that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so did Jane. And she was like, she was so apologetic. And I thought, well, it's not your fault because she was really sort of championing it and pushing it. And she couldn't believe that people were turning it, that they'd turned it all down. So I kind of went away. And then Jane said, look, I'm really sorry. You know, maybe just put it in a drawer and uh, start on something else. Uh, and maybe with the next book, we'll have a bit more luck. 
But I think what sort of stuck with me was the fact that all the feedback had generally been very good. Mm. I mean, if they, if they'd said, look, the writing's not quite there or the book as a whole doesn't, doesn't work or, or anything like that, then I may have thought, well, okay, I, I still need to improve as a writer. But all, everything had, all the sort of ingredients of the book were there and they'd said it was good, but they didn't want to publish it. So I kind of, I think that really sort of got my back up a little bit. Yeah. And, and then, you know, I'd been reading about self-publishing. I never thought it was something I would do. But then I decided, you know what? I think I want to get this book out there and just see what actual readers think of it. So, and as I said earlier, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I spent six months on social media, basically watching how the big publishing houses launched their books. Mm. and making notes and I you know all the graphics they did so my background is art and yeah, design so all the if I saw a graphic that I thought wow that looks really good I would copy it and then use it as a template and create my own very similar and um, I so I bought my own uh, ISBN numbers I created my own barcodes I designed my own cover uh, I formatted my own ebook I learned how to to typeset which was a skill I didn't have and I typeset the book for paperback and I went to Clay's who are the big book printers who print for a lot of the big publishers and I set up an account with them and I had them print my paperbacks mm. so I took the copyright page from a Lee Child novel and just changed <laughs> it I set up a fake publishing company with a with a, a virtual office address in like central London so it sounded really legit I designed a, a fake logo to go on the spine. So when it was sat on a bookshelf, it would look like it would cut. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. From a proper uh, publishing company. I had a fake publisher and a fake publicist and I did my own press releases and stuff. Brilliant. And so the paperbacks were there and Clay's said, would you like an account with gardeners? Now mm. gardeners are big book wholesalers Absolutely. Who, who supply waterstones and, and people like that. And I said, yes, I would. I'd love an account. So they set, they helped me set up an account, saved me a lot of the, the hassle of doing it. So I had an account with Gardeners, and then I sent the book to Waterstone's head office, you know, obviously hoping they'd take it as core stock, which means they'd buy like a ton of them and send it to every uh, branch in the country. But obviously they'd never heard of me or the publishing company or the book. So they didn't take it on as core stock, but what they did say, it's on Gardner's system. So any branch that wants to order it can. So I went to every branch I could physically get to with a proof copy because I'd had proof copies printed as well. And I went in, asked to speak to the manager, gave them a press release, a copy of the book, told them a bit about it, you know, won the CWA debut dagger. It's a crime novel. It's set in London. And, you know, to be fair, many of them would just said, oh, all right, we'll, we'll get 10 copies or we'll get 15 copies and, and see how it goes. Brilliant. So I did that in, in London to the branches I would get to. But on the Waterstones website, they have the email address of every store in the country. Uh, so then I was emailing press releases to branches in cities where I thought there might be an audience for the book. And then. It was selling in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, in Birmingham and, and, and places like that. So, you know, that was quite heartening. And then I'd seen that the book, the, the publishers would send the book to like uh, book bloggers to, to sort of initiate a bit of a buzz. So I made a list of uh, crime 
uh, book bloggers. And then I just sent them an email uh, with the press release saying, you know, would you like a copy of this book? You know, you can have an ebook or a physical copy. And then my old boss who'd printed my proof copies, um, he let me go and use his um, postage, like his franking machine and stuff like that. So, I, <laughs> so once a week I would go to his office and then sit there just sort of like filling envelopes and, and sending them off. And then I, then the reviews started to come in. And the reviews from book bloggers, from readers on Amazon, from people who'd bought it in Waterstones, I was getting five-star reviews and people were saying, oh, this is so unlike any other book that's out there and it's so different. And and it, the, the the most heartening thing was most of the readers were from that broad audience that mm. they were saying the book wouldn't appeal to. Mm. So, and I was like, well, okay, I'm... I'm really pleased about this. So I don't actually think they were correct in their assumptions. Um, so, you know, the book was doing fairly well. I, I was in it for the the long haul. I thought, you know, I'm going to keep plugging away and maybe it will get some traction. I was, you know, sending it to like, I went to Harrogate and I took a, a stack of the proofs and I was just foisting it upon authors and hoping they would read it and tweet about it and it might, you know, yeah. do something. And uh, so I was always hustling at events. And the thing is, I was before this, I was very shy and retiring, and I wouldn't, so I would never dream of doing something like that. But it, I kind of had to, you know, become my own sort of champion of the book and stuff because I was doing it all solo. It was very much guerrilla publishing. <laughs> and um, I was at one particular event in Waterstones, Piccadilly, and I'd taken a couple of copies of the book to, to give out, and. Um, an author called Courtney Newland, he said, oh, uh, there's a publisher here. I think you should meet her. And uh, at the end of the evening, he introduced me, and it was uh, Charmaine Lovegrove. Now, Charmaine had just set up a new imprint at Little Brown, part, yes. part, part of Hachette, called Dialogue Books. Oh, yeah, and I she, know, yeah. Yeah, and she was looking for uh, the first few authors to take on. So I met her, and I told her about the book. And the trouble I'd had getting published and that it was a crime novel set in Southall and stuff. And she said, wow, it sounds really interesting. Can you send it to me? I said, yeah, sure. So I sent her a copy of the book. I think it was on a Thursday or a Friday. And on Monday, I got an email saying, oh, could you come in for a meeting? So, I, you know, I'd had meetings before and it hadn't gone anywhere. So I wasn't sort of holding out that much hope. But I went along for the meeting and, you know, I turned up and they said, look, we love the book. We think it would really fit with our imprint. But, you know, what about your current publisher? And I said, <laughs> and yeah, I, said, cool. I, said I said, well, you're looking at him. And they were like, what? And I said, yeah, I, I'm the publisher. It's self-published. I did it. And they were sort of looking at this book with the, you know, the, the publisher's logo and all that. I said, this is you. And I went, yeah. That's all me. And I sort of told them. And they were like, oh, my God. And they said, okay, so there's no issues about it. I said, no, not at all. So I had to, they, by the end, but the thing is, I, I went to that meeting solo. So I got back home and then I emailed Jane and I said, look, I've just had a meeting with Dialogue Books. I think they might be interested in in buying the book. And then by the end of the week, I'd signed a two book deal with them. Mm, brilliant. So, so my self-published version, I had to pull from sale. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've got a couple of boxes still in the attic of uh, these, <laughs> yeah. the self-published version, which is a bit of a rarity now, apparently. But um, so, yeah. And then the book went through 
it got a new title, a new cover. It went through another sort of edit with dialogue. And then the following year, it came out as Brothers in Blood. Yeah. And it came out in September. And at the end of that year, it got really good reviews in all the national newspapers when it came out in September. But at the end of that year, it was picked by the Times and the Guardian as one of the thrillers of the year. So for, you know, for a book that no publisher wanted, I suddenly, I suddenly felt very, very vindicated indeed. So yeah. And then the follow up, uh, which came out two years later, Stone Cold Trouble ended up that, that was long listed for the CWA gold dagger for crime novel of the year. So quite a sort of um, trajectory. Mm. Oh, amazing yeah, but, your story is uh, incredible i'm just like <laughs> thank wow you. I've, I've got to ask I, I, this is an important question though given the trends within publishing now yeah uh does it does it anger you that uh, publishers clearly and publishing as, a, as an industry has woken up to the fact that it's got a diversity issue yeah in the in in the the, the people that it has hitherto been signing deals with was a certain type of person. So they were, they were making that decision based on, on uh, you know, it didn't fit with the, the wider audience. And now they're all offering scholarships and, you know, conduits for people from different backgrounds that aren't represented generally as authors yeah. opportunities. Does, so does it please you that they've finally woken up to this or does it yeah, anger it you does. to go through this hell? No, no, it doesn't anger me. I mean, I'm, I'm very glad that they have now realized and things. I think, I think with me, it was just timing. I, mm-hmm. I wish they'd woken up to that a lot sooner. Obviously it would have made things a lot easier for me. I think if they'd realized that, but a lot of, you know, it is the gatekeepers. Who are the gatekeepers? What are their backgrounds? Do they necessarily connect with that story? If it's if it's like in particular, my the the, the book that I wrote was from that part of West London, and a lot of people, I think, a lot of readers who read widely, it doesn't matter where the story's set. You're always Absolutely. looking for something different. Um, you know, people read about hobbits and boy wizards and, you know, Scandinavian noir and stuff like yeah. that, which is unfamiliar and, and everything. But, you know, that's what readers are always looking for something new. But I think in publishing, they're always looking for more of the same because if they know that it, it sells and I think with publishing now being so kind of run by numbers, nobody wants to take a risk. Uh, whereas in the old days, they, you know, the, the big sellers would fund the the sort of passion yes. projects yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. But a lot of that now has gone from publishing. You can't have a failure because, you know, the numbers then are not in your favor. Mm. So I think nobody wanted to take a risk on it. And, it, and because it was sort of different to what they would put, what was being published at that point. Um, and also, I think. Because if people aren't from that background, they're like, well, I don't really understand this. I don't get this. Will this appeal to other people? Because it feels so alien to me. I don't understand it. But then if you have diverse people working within publishing who come from a variety of backgrounds, to them, they may feel that, oh, this is an experience that is valid. I, I get this and I haven't read this before. And that might make them champion a book like that much more than was otherwise the case 
And so for me, yeah, it, it was about timing. I think I was, uh, you know, a couple of years too early. If, if mm. I'd been doing it a bit later, I may have got like a great deal and, you know, just it would have been a lot smoother ride. But, you know, I can't. It it, I mean, it is a great story. When I tell people the story, they're like, oh, my gosh, that's a great story. It and is. I did learn so much. Mm. I was actually a, like a publisher for a year. Um, and I, I'd sort of learned so much that I wouldn't have otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think it gave me a kind of tenacity and drive that I would not have gained otherwise. And those are all useful things. And, you know, to then still have gone on and, you know, had a Times and Guardian book of the year and then been long listed. I can't bemoan anything that's happened because I'm very pleased with how it's mm. kind of turned out. And I'm very pleased now that there, there are many more writers from diverse backgrounds and those stories are being told and publishing is realising that this is important and that readers relish these kind of new um, stories and voices and, and things like that. And it's only a good thing for publishing because there's, there's more scope then there's more material and, you know, everyone should be happy about that. Absolutely. I started reading um, Stone Cold Trouble and uh, the you know your second book so <laughs> you took me into a scene that i'm only too familiar with because i lived in acton near acton oh, town right. tube at gunnersbury okay. so i'm just like across the ealing common from yeah yeah i know exactly ealing and then southall yeah and that opening scene on presumably the the north circular stuck in traffic around yep. ealing common <laughs> been there dozens and dozens and dozens of times yes um, so that that took me to a place I know, but what I loved so much was your two main characters, Zach and Jags, yeah. the way they spoke. It was very fresh. The way the dialogue works and the the, the dropping in of uh, you know Indian vernacular, if I can yeah. call it that. I'm trying to figure out which language it was, but it's Punjabi. Punjabi, right? Yeah, Punjabi dropped in, and that f- was. You know, rather than being off-putting, which I'm sure a lot of the people who were writing there, it was great, 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 apart from this, um, were, were thinking, it actually is very, very um, exciting from a reader's point of view to Thank to you. experience that, to feel that authenticity. That's what I can say. It's the authenticity, isn't it? That's what I know. I, as a reader, that's what I want. I want yeah. authentic. Um, and, I, and I was very careful not to sort of overdo it. And there are instances, especially in the first book, where like some of the older characters will speak in Punjabi, but I always had Zach answer in English. And so, you know, by his answers, you can work out what the question must have been. So you yes. don't feel like you're missing anything out, uh, but it's not, you know, it's just, it's not spoon feeding the reader. And uh, I guess you kind of feel that you're sort of, you're in there and you're understanding what's going on. Um, with a greater sense of that authenticity because you're, you're kind of picking up on stuff. And I love the family dynamic, you know, that, that I mean, clearly South all the South Asian community that where you grew up, it's family is everything, but the way that you've used that as a dynamic within the story in the sense that, and I, I must admit, I've only read a few pages, but I got a feeling of almost a godfather sense of <laughs> <laughs> family, you know, we stick together uh, kind of thing going on there, that you will do anything 
and put yourself in harm's way for the family. Yeah, um, I think a, that's very dynamic. that is that is very much the case. And I think that you know the Godfather analogy it is very much like that. And I think for for those kind of like immigrant communities who came over and they had their family there, and often it was the family and friends were the only people they could rely on. So it's very tight knit communities there who do rely on each other. I mean, back in the day in Southall, they couldn't trust the police, you know, and they, the authorities were kind of just made things difficult for them and stuff like that. So they relied heavily on each other and family was everything and is everything. So family still very important to people from that kind of background. And so I had the characters, I mean, they're both the main characters, they've grown up here. So a lot of their influences and you know are very very sort of british and yet they have this added dimension of having the asian background and the things that 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 would entail and how that sort of um affects their sort of character and how they view the world and stuff yeah it's it's beautifully done and um, thank you and, yeah and really refreshing so two books published where yes. are you now in terms of you know, career development. The next, the next book. What, what, what's the picture? Well, I'm so I'm working on book three in the series. Uh, so another Zach and Jag's tale. That's all sort of planned out. Unfortunately, I have a day job, which kind of gets in the way. And I, you know, I have a um, a daughter as well who I have on the weekends. So time for writing is is quite limited, um, which is uh, a difficulty. But the book's all planned out. I'm sort of. Every chance I get, I'm trying to work on it. I'm really happy with the the plot and the structure and how it's all worked out. So that's on the cards. After that is a standalone that I, that was meant to be book two. So when I <laughs> when book one didn't uh, sell, you mentioned that, yeah, yeah. And then Jane said maybe start something else. So I came up with this idea, and it's sort of been refined over the years. But then when uh, when it did sell to dialogue and I said, yeah, I've got this standalone that I want to write next. And they were like, oh, can you do a follow-up? Like, yeah. Okay, shelved it. And then I thought I was going to do the follow-up. And they said, no, can you do a third and make it a trilogy? <laughs> I'm like, okay. So I will eventually get to this standalone, which is another West London set crime thriller um, with sort of Asian, but a much more mixed sort of cast, I think. there's. Um, so there's that. And then after that, I'm sort of toying with the idea of two historical thrillers. Ooh. But both set in London and both with main characters of colour, but different time periods. What what time periods are you thinking? Can we ask? You can ask. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so one one is one will be set right after the end of the Second World War, okay, in London, and the other one is set during the reign of Elizabeth the First. Wow. Yes, oh, that is quite, going back quite a bit. <laughs> it is going back quite a bit, and I think you know they're going to take a bit of i'm not a historian so i'm gonna to have to do some research and stuff yeah. but mm. so they they will take a while but i'm i'm, I'm excited about the actual stories and i've you know people i've sort of told you know oh this is what it's going to be about they loved it so yeah i think they they could well be the the sort of books um will that be five and six yeah you're going to be very busy yes i know <laughs> I need to, I need to write I need to write full time. I need You yeah. do. I need, well this is I need, the, yeah. this is the this is the Don't need a day job, do you? This no, is the no. issue, isn't it? I mean at what stage can you get to that point where it is your day job because 
uh, people have made that that leap, and I, I just don't know how they do it. If if I'm honest, because you know when you've got all those commitments and those time pressures, yeah, it's it seems impossible. I think I think the only way to do it is just to keep writing, and mm. either you get you know lucky with one a book becomes a bestseller and and you make enough that you can give up the day job or you just keep plugging away until you have enough of a body of work that that will generate enough of an income that you can you can give up the day job but until then i think it is just a case of you know just keep plugging away keep Mm. writing that's Mm. all that's all i can do that's all you know i think getting getting a bestseller is is something akin to sort of winning the lottery you can't sit around waiting for it because it might never happen Exactly, but you know, yeah. you know, but there's plenty of authors who you know they 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 have managed to without being sort of household names. They have got a steady readership and they keep writing, and then they get to a point where they can they can give up the day job. Yeah, and, you mean, know that. Yeah, that would be perfect. Say, we know for quite me. a few, don't we? Sort of self-published authors who aren't. They've got their readership and a very strong readership, and they're not well known. Yeah, nationally, but they don't work anymore because they earn enough money. So it's yeah. possible. Yes, definitely, definitely. But I think, yeah, putting in the work, keep writing, developing that readership. You know, um, that's all you can. That's all I can do. And then, you know, hopefully the rest will come. Whether that be, you know, uh, a, a book that sells extremely well, or a, you know, a, a big increase in readership, or a film deal, or there's all sorts of things that can happen. But you know, I think that the key is just to, to keep writing, do the work, put the books out there, and eventually something will happen. Mm. I'm interested about the ecology of your sort of writing life now, in yeah. the sense that when you embarked on this journey and started taking courses, you didn't know any authors. And yeah. you also started with this position where, you know, people from your background didn't become authors. So you now, you did the Harrogate thing, which is, uh, we know, because we've done two or three now, and it is yeah. so, you you have to put on that that shield of, um, that sort of bravura to go and walk up to people and hand books to them. It's not yeah. easy. Cause, it, I mean, what, what it wasn't ha- easy. Yeah, no, because what tends to happen is there's that wagon wheel, uh, with the wagons of all the authors go around in a circle. They're all sitting there with drinks, right? And it's, to go and approach that group feels... <laughs> so intimidating i need a it, gin and tonic before i do that yeah. well th- i was just about to say fortunately i like a drink so <laughs> that made it a lot easier you know i'll have a few and then you just sort of strike up a conversation and yeah. and i think what what helped for me was i could always drop in the fact i'd won the cwa debut dagger which of kind of really worked in my favor because you know you're trying to foist a book on someone they're like oh okay they probably get it all the time but when you say oh yeah i actually won the debut dagger then they're like oh really and then Mm. you've just got your sort of foot in the door you can do the elevator pitch can i give you a copy of the book and that's and that's it and then you know i wasn't pushy beyond that it was just you know if they would take a copy great and if they wouldn't then fine you know i didn't nobody owed it to me to take it or read it or anything and i never i never expected that so it was always really great when when people would say yes and fortunately a lot of authors were very kind to me and they did say yes and uh you know when the when brothers in blood was published i had quotes on on the cover from Mick Heron and Anne Cleves amongst yeah. other people yeah. who who i were both people I'd sort of foisted a copy of the self self published version on, 
but they were happy to su- support the book when it when Absolutely. it sort of came yeah. out. Well, so yeah. in terms of, she had both of them on the podcast. We have, yeah. we have, yeah, and they're, they're both fabulous people. But yeah, in terms of your social circle now, do you have a, a group of, of of writing, you know, contemporaries? Your writing you buddies so that you can bounce ideas off so of many and share. Now I know so many authors now. Yeah. So you know, when I when I go to events now, when I go to Harrogate or or other fe- festivals, I just know so many authors. Um, to, to go and say hello to, to have chats with, to have drinks with. I mean, it it's such a great feeling. And then there's, you know, other sort of Asian crime writers as well. And and so, so we'll get to know them and we, you know, we sort of like <laughs> speak about the state of the industry and how diversity is going and all that kind of stuff. Uh, quite sort of tongue in cheek, really. But um, yeah, and it, it's fantastic. And I sort of meet people that whose books I love. I mean, uh just last year in September, I met Sean Cosby, who was over in London. And I was like, oh, my God, I love his books. I have to meet him. And I did. So you know, I was really good just hanging out and having a chat. So it's a kind of, you know, for a, for a book fan and a sort of nerdy reader, it is really dream come true sort of situation, you know, and you know, being invited, being invited to like Mick Heron's book launch and, and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it's just can ask for more really no he's a genius he really yep. is um you know his prose is just off the scale uh, and he's just such a lovely person he is well. he is very yeah. modest no, and, he was, he was great for and his, his journey is is not dissimilar to yours isn't it and in terms of you know the gap between starting to write to yeah exactly period off and then finally finding success yep. is quite it's a long time it was you know, 20 years yeah, journey yeah. so yeah, I think that's what makes him very sympathetic, though, because he mm. knows how hard it can be. And yeah, and I think that goes back to what I was saying. You just got to keep doing the work. And in Mick's case, that's very much you know he was writing books, had a readership, but never got that sort of break. Mm. And then when it did come, now it's it's just really sort of come, and he's flying. And you know, it couldn't happen to a nicer person. Absolutely, hundred percent. Well, I think it is time, um, Emma, to uh, <laughs> oh, no. to hit you on a Friday evening with the toughest question in British podcasting, okay. which is, of course, Rebecca's random question. It's a quick question. Okay. Are you a creature of comfort, or do you like to change things up? In terms of what are we talking about in writing, in reading, in life, in life? I don't know. There are certain things that I do like, the comfort of my room filled with books and sitting here reading. But also I do like to change things up because, you know, variety is the spice of life. So I think I'm I'm a bit of both, a bit of a chameleon in that respect. That's a good way to be. Because with with Adrian, he he thinks he likes the change and the spice, but you are such a routine lover. You really are, aren't you? Really, at heart. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose, I suppose, as I get to know myself better, at, you know, in my fifties, um, and recognise that I, I must be, uh, to some degree, autistic somewhere along the line. Yeah, I think there's probably is an element of that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, I have uh, a habit of, um, let me see, how would I describe it? Behaving badly. 
Um, <laughs> well, I mean, he got me in trouble at the BBC regularly when I worked there and, and you know, just saying the wrong thing, you know, with this heavy slice of irony. But, of course, that doesn't work anymore in the, in the current world. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's it's clearly, you know, whatever you say is is gospel and, and, and therefore you're being offensive. And, and But as uh, long as you're in bed by 10 o'clock. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> no, I suppose I suppose as I get older, yeah, the, com- the comforts and the, the routine is more important to me for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, what I mean, you? yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I like my company. And the thing is, yeah, when you get older, you know what you like, <laughs> and you surround yourself with that stuff. So why would you want to sort of change it? You know. But the thing yeah. is, when you're out, when you're out and about, then you know, change is good because you're out there to experience things. But I think, yeah, having having your creature comforts at home, mm. um, there's nothing like wrong your with that. Favorite mug <laughs> and things like that. Yep, favorite mug. You know, favorite chair, favorite blanket favorite tv shows all that kind of stuff you know you've you've kind of got to that point in life where you know what you like and you know it makes you feel good problem in our house though is that the favorite chair is the favorite of three people so they fight over the favorite chair yeah i can see yours (laughs) your your eldest boy yesterday we were watching something i can't remember what was it university challenge the other night and uh, i was in favorite chair and he just looked for about uh, three minutes, he looked like thunder. No, that's no, that's not he true. Did. He no, did. No, no. So, well, the night before, he 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 sat in a different chair to let you have the favorite chair. I saw him do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, he's very wise. The, my oldest boy and youngest boy, they will both try and sit on the chair with it, moving their bottoms into each other. <laughs> and, it's very cozy. <laughs> Sounds very cozy. <laughs> they are they're, they're, they're funny that way oh fantastic this has been a wonderful interview thank you so much um where oh, can we you find you online me. if you want to find out more about you um so my website is www.amaanwar.com uh, and i'm on twitter and facebook uh instagram a little bit but yeah if anybody wants to to sort of message me or anything twitter is usually the best place to get me and i'm always happy to chat fantastic it's Ready. been an absolute pleasure to speak to you if you're going this year i am going to harrogate well i'm planning to yeah i've got my uh hotel and train tickets all sorted and everything so i shall be there and if you need to find me anywhere just look by the bar oh, absolutely <laughs> well that's where we hang as well yeah. Yeah. we'll see you there thank you so <laughs> okay much. lovely all right thanks very much it was a brilliant way to start our friday night talking to anna yes it was it was great it really was okay look we'd like to have a bit of fun on this program we, we do, really do, every now and then. And um, we like to sometimes draw inspiration from the things that we watch. <laughs> and so we have decided that we're going to apply a new process to sifting through our big submissions pile. And it's a very successful way to do it, I think. Yeah, let's introduce you to our new way of doing things. <laughs> Poopy Chef is back. You've reached 80,000 words. You need to submit it now. Time's running out. That is WH Smith quality. <laughs> ah, paper cut. With 45 of the most ambitious crime writers, all competing for a coveted place in the Hobo Chef author lineup. That's not where you put a paragraph. Only the best writers will make it to the literary adventures of a lifetime. 
and the chance to meet the Hobet Cat. We hope you enjoyed that. We had fun making it. It was so much fun. I'm still. I, I think the BBC might give us a call. Well, uh, uh, as you know, <laughs> my ambition is to do MasterChef at some point in the near future. But I have to say, so far, watching this new series, the standard in the opening round has gone way up. I must admit, I have noticed it's almost like you've gone a bit quiet while watching I it. I have, because honestly, the talent this year has been absolutely staggeringly good. Um first two weeks and i'm just thinking yeah i could see myself competing and getting an apron last year but not this year it, it does seem to be the way with these things doesn't it because i don't know it's it's it starts off as a way of getting ordinary people doing ordinary cooking to improve but then they watch the show Mm-hmm. And they emulate what's on the show, and then they get better. And then the next year, and the next year, next year, like that. So, yeah, yeah it's been it's staggering. Be tough, <laughs> staggering, right? Well, look. Um, in terms of our week ahead, it's well, no London Book Fair to worry about. Thank God. Just, just in terms of exhaustion. <laughs> yeah, no, you are tired, and we, we all are. Um, you know, there's lots of sort of family things going on. Uh, my son has his driving test on Thursday, so that's, <laughs> that's going to be a big day. I hope he passes. He he was great today when I took him out for a couple of hours, practicing parking and all sorts of things. Um, and so, you know, fair wind, he'll get it. He uh, will. Uh, but, you know, otherwise, it's it's another busy week at Hobeck Towers. Uh, we've got the submissions to do uh, in our new format. And uh, we <laughs> yeah. would encourage you, of course, to take a good look at what we can offer as a publisher. We have our subsidiary, Arch Publishing Services, which is getting a lot of interest. Yeah, I'm actually on another job at the moment for somebody who approached us through Arch Publishing Services. Yeah, so we can help you get your books to print. But, uh, of course, we have Hobeck Books, and our website there is www.hobeck.net. Please subscribe to this podcast if you've uh, come across us this week and enjoyed it. We'd love you to be a regular listener. Uh, But for myself, Adrian Hobart. And myself, Rebecca Collins. Thanks so much for joining us and have a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to The Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.